Well, good morning again. Um, we are continuing in our series on one-to-one -one finding your one, and I hope that it's been encouraging but also challenging to you, that maybe it's been convicting uh, in some areas, maybe it's solidified some things in your faith, but also want to continue to remind us the whole point or the whole purpose behind this is to equip us with the ability to be able to go out and share the gospel with other people helping them to see the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so over the past several weeks, we've been examining the foundation of Scripture. We've been seeing the solidarity of the Bible, its uniqueness as well as its authenticity. But we've also then seen how well it has been attested to across the centuries, reminding us that what we have essentially in the Scriptures is very, very accurate to what was originally presented to the individuals that wrote this down being divinely inspired but then also what has been written down continues to be accurate to what we read today. And then we talked a little bit about who God is, um, kind of his nature and the uh, fact of him being a just and merciful God, but also um, a God who um, is one who is holy, who is separate from sin. And then we realize that he is slow to anger um, and a forgiving God. And then we discovered also uh, essentially who Jesus is and the point behind him, but more importantly, who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the fact that we have been separated from God because of our sins, and we're going to be discovering the divine solution to that via Jesus Christ, but then also we're going to be looking at our response to it. And so with that, what I want to take a moment and say is, first and foremost, some of you might know, thank you uh, to those of you that have been praying, uh, Kelly is off up in Winona, I believe, Minnesota, with Maddox at a volleyball tournament. And so I've been home holding down the fort uh, with little guy, and so far so good. We had a great day yesterday. Um, got him to church on time. I want to take a minute and thank Chris, who watched him this morning as I was doing announcements. Um, the house hasn't burned down. Um, and so the, the good news in that is um, we're doing all right, but also it reminds me how grateful I am to have Kelly in my life. And what I want to say is this, we're coming up on our 10th anniversary here in June, and what I want to tell you is um, how great our wedding was. Um, it was a wonderful day. We were super excited about it. That's where essentially we pledged our love to one another, uh, as well as um, our commitment before God. Gorgeous time, awesome time, and we just spent that day uh, rejoicing over the fact that we were going to be married. And it's been so wonderful and so great, and I'm so happy about that, but I haven't seen her for the last 10 years. I haven't done anything with her. I, you know, it was, it was an awesome day, super encouraging, full of excitement, great day, and we're coming up on 10 years, but I, you know, I remember the day I remember when I committed my life to her, but I haven't spent any time with her since. Now, you're looking at me, and everybody's kind of going, wait a minute, is he feeling okay? Why is he bringing this up? Now, yes, okay, that is a lie. Forgive me for lying. But the point that I'm making is this. How ridiculous does that sound? If I'm making a commitment to someone who's made such a significant impact in my life, and I remember the day of the committal, and the joy that was there, but then afterwards I spend absolutely no time nurturing or solidifying that relationship or molding myself more and more into that marriage. People would look and they would say, is that a marriage at all, right? And so this morning, what I'm doing is I'm using that as an example of what I'm confronting, which is easy believism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what I'm going to tell you is, yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are now no longer in our sin and we have been saved. But one of the things that I think is so important for us to see is there is so much more to the Christian life than just praying a prayer. And one of the things that I want to encourage you in is, and I've said this before, when people come to me and they say, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have a relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Yes, I will ask, have you gone to God and asked him to forgive you of your sins? Have you asked him to be in your life? Yes, that's important. But I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to say the true mark 
of being someone who is in relationship with our Lord and Savior, being saved, is someone who is walking with God in a relationship with him. It's not just this far-off, passive response of, oh yeah, I remember one day I was at a church, or oh yeah, I was at a, at a conference, I went down, I prayed to have Jesus as my Savior, and it was wonderful, and then I haven't done anything since. And what we're going to talk about today is truly what our response should be to the gospel. Now, God is mighty to save. I'm not saying that he's not. But what I'm telling you is, if you want to authentically know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's in the day-to-day -day actions of how we are living our life. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus. Because a lot of people, even the demons, believed in Jesus. It's a whole other thing to make him Lord of your life. So with that, we're going to be looking again at the mission of Jesus, the same question that we've had over the last couple of weeks, and that is, what is the mission of Jesus and why was it needed? And what we've discovered in this, first and foremost, is that the mission of Jesus from the get-go was to go to the cross on our behalf to forgive us of our sins. I've said it before that this is God's plan A. This is not God's plan B. This is not essentially something where God was doing his thing and thought that he had figured out the right way for us to get to know him in some form of a relationship. And then things went awry and God said, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. So Jesus, get in there and let's throw a Hail Mary pass and hopefully it's all going to work out. What we've discovered in the Old Testament from the beginning, in the prophecies that have been stated, is that there would be a Messiah who would come and suffer on our behalf for our iniquities or our sins. That was stated hundreds of years prior. That was stated that there was a need, that he would provide a kingdom, that he would be the ultimate sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, we're coming forward, if you can believe it, in March to April, and we're going to celebrate Easter. And one of the things that I want to encourage us in when we celebrate Easter is simply this. It is so much more impactful on our lives when we recognize our utter need for a Savior. The fact that we are destitute apart from God. That we can't get to Him on our own. We can't intellectualize ourselves to Him. We can't do good things, although that's not a bad thing. We do good things because we've been saved. But in doing good things, God doesn't tick them off the box and sort of advance us to our salvation. It's the idea of how good is good enough. And what I'm going to tell you is good enough is not good enough because we need a perfect Savior. And so in that, we recognize that the whole point behind the gospel is this, that we are destined to a life apart from God because he is holy and just. And in ourselves, sin is a desire to live independently from God. We see that in the beginning of scriptures with Adam and Eve. God provides everything for them. God provides them a wonderful life. And what we know is this. He says, look, all of this is yours except for one thing. Just don't eat of the fruit of the tree from the knowledge of what? Good and evil. You can have all of this, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I know me. And I'd love to tell you, like, man, they, they, I, I can't believe that they did that. I mean, they had all of this stuff. Why weren't they satisfied? But I know my heart. I know that I would be sitting there and I would sit and I would say, why, why can I have all of this but not that? What's the problem? And I know how I would look at it. I would, in my own desire and curiosity, say, sure, I've got all of this, but I want that. Just like Adam and Eve. And what we discover in that is, is it's this desire. You can have all of these things. You can have relationship with me, but it's not good enough. And what they want is more. They want to be their own God. They want to know what God knows. And so they eat. And what we know from that is obviously then they are cast from the presence of God. Immediately after that, the relationship is broken. God comes searching for them. And rather than willingly going before God, what do they do? They hide from him.
Can I ask you a quick question as we dive into this? Are there times in your life where you're hiding from God? Or are there things that you are hiding from him, not wanting him to know? If we were to play a video of your life this past week, right? Okay, and don't worry, we didn't do this. Don't sue us. But what if I told you that we had put a camera in your life to follow you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we're going to display what you've done right here in front of everybody? How many of you would come forward and say, I don't want you to do that because I don't want you to see the sins that are in my life? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, I'd raise my hand. And the reality of that is, is this desire for us to live at times independently from God and recognizing that in that, what God wants is us to live in intimacy with him. Now, on that, what I'm going to tell you is this. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Okay? There's mercy and there's grace. And praise God for it. But what we have to realize in our hearts is there are these moments where we want to say to ourselves, God, you've got this part, but let me do this. I just want to be saved. I just want to know that I'm not destined to be apart from you. But other than that, I don't want you. Just, just stay away, right? I got it. I can do better than you. Let me get the, you know, get out of jail, or you kind of hear that get out of hell free card. But after that, God, I don't want any more. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want any more of you. And so what we're going to see this morning is how Jesus is the divine solution. But I'm going to encourage us in our response to that solution. And what God is asking of us and desiring from us in an intimate relationship with him. Now, going back to the fact with Kelly, what I'm going to tell you is, praise God that I wasn't married 10 years ago and haven't had any interaction with her for the past 10 years. I love interacting with her. I miss her when she's gone. I desire to draw closer to her. I pray that as we change, we change together. We grow in intimacy with one another. But more important, as much as I love Kelly, my relationship with God is that much more important. And I pray that as I grow, as I change, as life moves and I learn or falter or succeed or fail, that as all of those ebbs and flows and twists and turns of life occur, that my heart draws closer to God, more intimate with him, more dependent upon him, rather than independent of him when I don't get what I want, how I want, and when I want it. And that's what God is after. What's the mission of Jesus and why is it needed? What we have to realize, Dr. Robert Lewis starts off and he says this, God's unalterable law is death for sin. It is unalterable. We are supposed to die because of our sin. And it is an unalterable law. There's no manner of how we can change it. There's no manner of how we can essentially figure out how to get away from it or pay it off. And he will not brush aside our sin or overlook it. And what I want to take a moment is I just want to say this, okay? Again, that video, we're going to put it up on the screen. Everybody's kind of going, don't do it. What if I told you that in it there was no manner to overlook or brush this aside? There's, just, there's no way to repay what we're going to see. It'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? But then he continues on. He says, rather as a holy and just God, he requires each of us to pay the penalty for death for our willful independence. And so what if you, in this video, knew that because of your willful independence, the penalty was death? How many of you would be excited to watch that video? Pretty terrifying, isn't it? According to the Bible, there's only one escape from personal judgment. And it's interesting because as I, as I read this for a minute, I'm like, man, escape. That's an interesting word, right? Escape. Getting away from. Getting out of. No longer being included in. Right? 
Think about this. What if there was a fire in here today? Do we know the escape route? Do we know how to get out? Are we grateful for that? What if there was only one route? Which is what we see in scripture. I don't know about you, but if this place started to come ablaze, and I knew that there was only one way out, I'm gonna tell you, I am gonna be grateful for that one way out. And I'm gonna be grateful to know how to escape that fire. According to the Bible, there is only one escape from personal judgment. That escape requires someone else to pay our death penalty for us. I can't do it. Now, think about this for a minute. I'm going to use this analogy. What if I got to, and I'm just going to use the doors behind me. What if I got to that door, and I could not push them out. You guys would say, okay, you need to start lifting weights more. What's going on, right? But what if, what if I couldn't, I couldn't get through that door and the fire is raging and I'm looking and I'm saying, I can't do this. And then someone came and said, go ahead, I'll stay here for you. And the door opened and I got out and he did not. Do you think I'm going to remember that? That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. For each and every one of us. Now, he didn't stand in a fire, but he hung on a cross on our behalf. Divine justice would not only be served, but we could be pardoned. So when Jesus is on the cross and he dies for our sins and he says, forgive them, Father, for what they know not what they do, and then we see the cross event, and Jesus, and this is some of the things that I think are so important, Jesus does not die, okay? Death does not overcome Jesus. What does he say on the cross? He says, it is finished. What is the finished portion? Okay, our debt's been paid. The atonement for our sins have been paid. And then what does he do? What does scripture tell us? He dies, right? No. He gives up his spirit. He is in full control of what is going on as he hangs on the cross. And once our debt is paid, once our sin has been atoned for, He says, it is finished, it is done, and he gives up his spirit and dies. But more important, what we've discovered in these other moments is that he doesn't stay dead in the grave, does he? Three days later, he rises from the grave. One of the things that I think is so encouraging and so important is to remember and recognize when we look at Good Friday how dark it would be had Jesus never risen from the grave. Several of you might have uh, remembered or participated in a Tannenbrae service. We've done that a few years ago here at the church. And what it is, is it's a service on Good Friday where we essentially have candles in the form of a cross. And there are enough candles for enough verses to essentially take us from the arrest of Jesus to where he gives up his spirit and dies. And the whole point in it is is to enter in daylight and it's designed to then have us exit in darkness. And what we see as we read each verse is as an individual reads the verse, they come forward and they extinguish one candle. Slowly but surely demonstrating that the light of the world is becoming extinguished. And interestingly enough, we have at the center of this in the service what is called the Christ candle. And on the moment that we say it is finished and he gives up his spirit and dies, that candle is extinguished and the whole point behind it is for us to leave in darkness, having entered with light but to go back into the world in complete darkness. 
And what I want to say is this, what if the sun never rose again? That's why we have such joy at Easter. And I don't know about you, but Easter morning, one of my favorite things to do is to get up early in the darkness and to watch the sun come up as a reminder to the light that we have in the world. I'm not worshiping the sun, S-U-N, I'm worshiping the sun, S-O-N. But it's a great reminder that there is no darkness in the world and that there is light through Jesus Christ. And we've been pardoned because of him. Interestingly enough, Robert Lewis continues on, he says, but who in this world is qualified to take our place? Who is able to absorb our sin? And the reason behind this is, is we want to help individuals see their need for a savior, their desperate need for who God is, and to then cherish the fact that we cherish our savior Jesus Christ because of what he's done on the cross. The whole reason that we rejoice is Easter is to remember and recognize that when we leave on Friday, we are in a world of darkness and desperation. And yet we have light and life through Jesus Christ. The other thing too that I think is so important is this. Not only do we see divine justice being served, but we're pardoned from our sin. We're no longer guilty of it. How many of you have ever done something unlawful? How many of you know the punishment for whatever you've done unlawfully? How many of you have been pardoned from that punishment because you did something unlawfully? How many of you were grateful for it? I'll tell you another quick story, and again, you're going to be like, I don't know that I want him pastoring our church, but... Um, several years ago, um, I was at work in uh, Philadelphia. I was just out of college, um, went to see some friends, um, spent some time with them, and then I had to head back to my apartment. And uh, in heading back to my apartment at 2 a.m., um, I was in my Subaru Impreza, and there was a highway before me, and there was this great big hill, and I had this glorious and wondrous thought of, I've never known how fast this car can go. And so I decided I'm going to see how fast this car will go. And for a brief 15 seconds, it was the most glorious time of my life as I roared past 120 miles an hour. And I was putting the pedal down, we were going down the hill, and life was just flying by me, and man, that was living. Until I saw lights behind me, and my heart sunk. It wasn't a fire truck, it was a policeman. And sure enough, I will spare you that, but I got pulled over doing about 125 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour in a 55. Yeah. So, I'll fast forward. I'm independent, I'm on my own, and what I'm gonna tell you is, is yes, I'm in a larger city, but there's not very good public transportation. And my job is about 12 miles away. And the funny thing is, is I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if I don't have a car, I can't get to work, I don't have a job. And so, long story short, I go in, I find a lawyer, I go before a judge, and what I'm going to tell you is, the bottom line is guilty, okay? How, how do you plead? I'm gonna, not guilty, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, right? No, I am guilty as charged. And all I could do was plead the mercy of the court. That's all I could do. And what I'm going to tell you is simply this. Praise God for that judge who came forward and he said, Son, here's what I want to do. I want you to take a look at a couple of pictures. And he took out a couple of pictures of a couple of cars wrapped around trees, etc., etc., etc. And he said, I want you to take a very good look at these things. And he said... Now, you've been forgiven. Go and be. And as I kind of walked by, he said, but if I ever see you in my courtroom again, <laughs> right? Now, we're laughing about that, but that was just being pardoned for a ticket. What if the penalty for that was death? And what if 
the judge said guilty. But then Jesus stepped in and said, no. Yes, he's guilty, but put his punishment on me. I will take his punishment so Trevor might go free. Brothers and sisters, that's what Christ has done for us. And that's the reason when we discover the joy of walking with Christ that it should be an impactful thing that changes our life forever. Jesus is the one who is qualified to take our place. Jesus is the only one who is qualified to take our place for the sins of which we've committed for the fact that we are guilty and the punishment for our guilt is separation from God and a life apart from him. And so we continue on and we see in point number one, Jesus being God in the flesh is the divine solution for our problem with sin. And one of the reasons that I want to just take a moment and, and pause on that is to rejoice in this. Yes, there is a huge problem and we are set apart, separate from God. But when we look to God and when we look to Jesus, we discover that he, being God in the flesh, is the divine solution to our problem with sin. And that should drive us to rejoice in the greatness of who Jesus is. There's a few verses that I want to share with you, and I hope that this will continue to encourage you. The first one that we see is out of Matthew 20, verse 28. And it says, essentially, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. Proof positive to what we talk about. I find it interesting that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, our Savior Jesus Christ, could have easily said, they're not worth it. I don't want to. They don't need me. I don't want to serve them. But what did he do? He willingly was obedient to the will of the Father that we read in Isaiah. And the will of the Father was to crush, bruise, beat, and destroy his son so that we might have life through him as a ransom payment for our sin. And so Jesus comes not to be served, although he is worthy of being served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. And that payment is for you and for me. And then we continue on and one of the things that I think is so beautiful as we read in Romans 5, 8, and 9 is the fact that while we didn't want God, while we don't want him, he wants us. And he willingly goes and dies on a cross so that we might have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, and 9 states, but God demonstrate his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still apart from God, while we were still desiring to live independently of him, Christ died. But notice the point of the sentence. It doesn't stop and say, while we were still sinners, Christ died. What does it say? For us. He didn't die just to die, to have some story told about him. But the mission, as we discover, is his death is for you and me so that we might have eternal life. Why? Well, it says, since we have now been justified by his blood, so that we might be justified before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Again, it's all about what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then we talked earlier about the fact that Jesus comes forward and says, you know what, yes, Trevor is guilty. Yes, he does deserve this, but let him go free and whatever he is owed, or whatever he owes, put on my shoulders. We see that exact expression in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The more that I think about the, the, the perfection of Jesus, that he was absolutely not guilty, there was no penalty that he was due. There was no corruption in his heart. There was no scam in his work. There was no evil in his intentions. He was completely not guilty. And yet I was completely guilty, just like my 120 to 125 mile an hour in a 55. There is no way I'm getting out of that. I would absolutely be loony if I went up to the judge and said, not guilty, judge. You got the wrong guy. And in knowing my guilt, and in knowing the penalty for my guilt, and to then be prescribed, you are guilty, but to have Jesus walk forward and say, let me take that for him. But you didn't do anything. You weren't in the car. You weren't even there. Yeah, let me, let me take it for him. Jesus, who had no sin, becomes sin for us. What? So that I can become righteous before God. Let him go free. Let him be free and become righteous and live the life and let me take that penalty. And I don't know about you, but lovingly and jokingly, I've never done 120 in a car again. I do do donuts out in the parking lot when there's ice. But that changed. And where I'm going with this is when I discover who Jesus is, there should be a change. Right? Oh my gosh. I don't want to live apart from you. I don't want just to have you walk in. I want to get to know you. You're the guy who forgave me of my sin. I don't want to just walk out of the courtroom and say, great, thanks, now I'm free to do what I want. I want to go to that person and say, who are you? Why? How do you have the power to take what I'm owed and allow me to walk freely in righteousness before the judge? Tell me who you are. What can I do? How can I know you more? Dr. Robert Lewis says this, what Christ really experienced for us on the cross was the death of separation from God. Think about that for a minute. And during that time of separation, he suffered through the fear, guilt, impurity, hopelessness, etc. our independence brings. He experiences all of that so that we might be pardoned to experience the life which comes from God and what a wonderful life it is. His substitutionary sacrifice removes the penalty of death imposed on us for our sins. Okay? His substitutionary sacrifice. Let me stand in your place. Let me take what you are due so that you might have righteousness before God. And so we see that Jesus being God in the flesh is a divine solution for our problem with sin. But what should our response be? Again, I want to take a minute and I want to tell you, what if that occurred? What if somebody came forward and got you off of something that you're, you're due, that you're guilty of, that you were going to have to pay the, to pay the penalty for? Are you just going to want to walk away and just say thanks, but I don't even want to know who you are? And so what we see in this, after knowing what Jesus has done, we discover that because Jesus is the divine solution for our problem is sin, we have to respond to him. We should respond to him. And what I want to encourage you in is, what's the right response? 
Again, Dr. Robert Lewis says, although Christ's sacrifice provides a solution to our sin and separation from God, it by no means becomes the solution until each of us has personally appropriated it for ourselves. Now, what I want to talk about here, okay? Yes, Christ died on a cross to forgive us of our sins, okay? But there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to remember, we need to recognize that it is a personal response of what we are responsible for, okay? Your wife, your brother, your sister, your grandparents, your parents, they can't do it for you. So lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is this. I go to church because my parents go to church because my parents' parents went to church because my parents' parents' parents went to church. That's good, but it isn't salvation. You are not saved. You do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ just because your mom and dad went to church. Although, praise God that your mom and dad did go to church. You are saved because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We must personally appropriate it for ourselves. We must enter and engage in relationship with Christ. Saying, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. My mom can't do it. My dad can't do it. Coming to church can't do it. I come to church because I worship the God who has saved me. Not I come to church so that by going to church, I might get saved. Okay? Now, you could get saved in hearing the message of the gospel, but church doesn't save you. Jesus does. We read in John 1, 12 and 13, yet he who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, think of this for a minute, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born from God. Right there, okay? Right there it says, look, we must appropriate, we must come before God and make that decision and choice for ourselves. It's not out of natural descent. It's not because you're in the lineage. It's not because your parents went to church. It's not human decision. Now, I want to appropriate this, okay? It is your crying out to God, but it isn't someone else saying, hey, you've come to church enough or you've gone through this class, or you've said the right things, so now in hearing you go through the class and say the right things, we are going to impart God's salvation upon you. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it's not a husband's will. Now, during the time of Jesus, obviously, ladies don't get upset, but the male had sort of authority to impart certain things upon his wife. And what that means, essentially, for us is, is we can't just impart our will upon someone else. It is a personal decision that each of us must come before God and choose, recognizing that God is the one who does the saving. And so what does it mean to receive Christ? Think about this for a minute. What does it mean to receive Christ? And there's a few things that I want to show us as we look through Scripture. In Mark 8, 34 through 35, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Stop and pause there for a minute. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How have we turned that into, oh, just pray a prayer and all is well, and then do not worry about it from there. Now, yes, the prayer of salvation is important, but Jesus never says, hey, if you want to know me, just come forward and tell me that you love me, and then move on and don't worry about me. 
No, you must what? Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. And it's interesting because I will, I will comment to this. I hear so many people talk about the thief on the cross. And I'm not denying that the thief on the cross who cries out to Jesus is with him in paradise. Yes, he is. I'm not denying that at all. But here's my question to all of us. Do we in our lives want to get to a point where we are standing on a cliff and leaning over like this with no return to the point that we're about to lose our balance and fall eternally apart from God to hope that in that moment, all of a sudden, he's going to reach out and say, okay. Yes, he has the power and authority to do so, but why would we want to lean? Why would we want to put ourselves in that position anyway when we've been presented with the opportunity to know him, to love him, and to serve him through the power of the gospel? And so what I lovingly tell people is, why wait? Why put yourself in this position when you've been given the opportunity to rest securely in God and who he is through the power of the cross and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He must pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Forever, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for me and the gospel will save it. Can I ask a question? And this is something that I personally examine myself in on a regular basis. Do we want salvation, but do we not want to lose our life for Jesus Christ? Lord, save me, but let me have my life. Get me out of the penalty, but then step away and let me do what I want, how I want, and where I want it. Or in that, do we say, Lord, my life is yours. Now go do what you do. Go be what you are. Be who God's created you to be. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. You all do not need to become a pastor like me. God's gifted you in certain ways with certain talents and certain gifts. But lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Is your life for you and you alone, apart from God, just to get you into heaven, or is it a life in knowing what Jesus has done for you and one that you say, Lord, I want now my life to be a reflection of you. I want people to see you through me. And we continue on in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, it says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so the next question is, is do we believe, but more important, do we believe the death that is reported is what has been stated in the scriptures? Or are we looking for other means, other ways, other paths to salvation? Sure, yeah, the Bible's okay, but I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something that's different. I don't trust what's in there. But we recognize, as we've seen in the authority of scriptures, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died because we desperately need him and we cannot get to Jesus on our own. Then we continue on in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? My friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is... Lord. Well, if he is Lord, then make him so. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, okay? Notice the importance of the resurrection. Then you will be saved. So lovingly, if you want to be saved, my question to you is this, not did you pray the prayer, but is Jesus Lord of your life? And if Jesus is Lord of your life and you believe in the resurrection, then you are saved. And then finally, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so in receiving Christ, 
in knowing him, do you have life in the full? Is there joy in the journey? I'm not saying that life is easy. I'm not saying that you get what you want how you want. But is there joy in knowing who Jesus Christ is? Do people see joy in you in serving our king? And so putting this all together, I think Dr. Lewis does a great job. Receiving Christ, what does it mean? What does it mean to receive Christ? Number one, it means to turn away from our independence from God. To turn away from saying, I want to live independently of you. And number two, it means to embrace Christ's death as payment for my sins, which brings forgiveness to my life. Recognizing that we desperately need Jesus. We're not good people made to be better. We're dead people who become alive through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Number three, to confess that Jesus is alive and Lord of my life. To believe in the resurrection. To recognizing that he is going to come again. But more important, that he's now Lord of our life. And then the final one. To believe that in Christ there is a better, more abundant life for me than I now have. And that's the one that I want to park on. Do we believe that in Christ there is a better life for us than we now have? Or do we want Christ so that we get out of the penalty, but then say, God, my life is fine, stay away. And when God alters our life through a job change, through a challenge, through something that we don't want, do we get mad at him? Or do we look and we say, perhaps, God, what you're doing here is changing my life so that I might know you more? Perhaps through the struggle, it's an ability for me to see how I can fully, wholly depend on you and that you are faithful and that you are good and that you are there and that you do care and that you are working my life for your honor and your glory. And so, Lord, I say with confidence and truthfulness, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Brothers and sisters in Christ, lovingly I tell you, can we say that before God with truth on our lips? Do we fully believe that in Christ there is a better, more abundant life for me than I now have. And so, putting this all together, I kind of want to wrap up the idea that Christ has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. That is the divine solution. And that is the only solution. And so may we rest and rejoice in that, but may we also be very lovingly bold to say, look, Christ didn't do this just for a nice display. He did it because it is the only means that we have to become righteous and forgiven before God, to be justified and forgiven of our sins. But we also now know that we have to respond and make him Lord of our life. And so I ask you, is Jesus Lord of your life? I leave you with this quote that I want you to think about and meditate upon Dr. Lewis says this, when you become a Christian, there is a drastic reordering of your life. And so I want to ask you, has your life been reordered? Not only do you commit yourself to Jesus as the only way to God, but you submit yourself to a new way of living. Are you living differently? Is there a difference after having come to know Jesus Christ or are you still living the way that you were before you knew him? You no longer do as you please, but what pleases him? God, what can I do to please you? It is this decision a decision that says life cannot properly be lived apart from God, okay? Life cannot properly be lived. That's kind of a hard thing. Life cannot properly be lived. There we go. Apart from God. 
which forms the basis of our relationship with God thereafter. This is who the Christian is and how the Christian is to live. And so what I want to ask you is this. Have we reached the point, have we come to the ecclesiastical perspective? Can we, like the writer in Ecclesiastes, say, you know what, there is everything out there. I've seen and experienced everything under the sun. I've done it. I've seen it. I've known it. I've had it. And what I'm going to tell you is this. My conclusion in the matter is this. Life is meaningless apart from God. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Have the fullness of life in a full relationship with God and see how glorious it is knowing him and serving him and allowing him to be Lord of your life and not living independently from him and saying, God, you do what I want, how I want, and where I want it. Christ has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. However, we have to respond and make him Lord of our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for you. We thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. Father, may we never recognize that we need to do more in order to be saved. But Father, what I pray is that we would look to what you have done for us. And Father, in that, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about this kind of OEO relationship where we're continuing to kind of trudge and grudge along, hoping that you care. But what we're realizing is what you've done and our utter need for you. And that what we've been given in you is a life and life in abundance. But Lord, I pray that because of that, we wouldn't just take it and say thank you and then remove ourselves from it or say, God, thank you for doing what you've done. Now leave me alone or don't take any part of my life. But rather what we would realize is the great relationship that we can have and do have with you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So little by little, as we see in the idea of being sanctified that we are set apart for you, that little by little as we live our life, we want more of you and less of the world. Father, help us to be in the world. Help us to be able to relate to the world. Help us to be able to be conduits to show the world who you are. But Father, I pray that as we look to you, as we look at the greatness of the relationship that we have with you, that little by little, the world would sort of fade into the taillights, into the back of our lives, and that what's ahead is simply you and a relationship with you and how we might be able to serve you and demonstrate your love and mercy and grace to others. Father, thank you that salvation has been made for all because Christ died on a cross. But Father, help us not to take that salvation for granted. Help us not to abuse what we've been given, but rather, Lord, in it, may we pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you, bringing glory and honor to your name. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,